My friend Gabe grew up in Walden Creek. We were both college students, working for extra money at a second-hand bookstore outside of Wichita in the spring. Being the only employees working other than the owner, who spent most of her time in the office reading her own collection, we had plenty of free time to get to know each other. We discussed books, movies, music, things like that. At the end of every week, we were allowed to take home a book to read, on the condition that we brought it back Monday, or it would be taken out of our pay. I liked the idea of my own personal library, and had been on a supernatural kick. I had found a full-time salary job, and was due to start there in three weeks. And on the last Monday I worked, Gabe asked what I had read over the weekend. I showed him the copy of Legends of the Ozarks I was carrying. He was amused, and I offered it to him. He opened it to the index, scanned the page, gave a slight smirk. He flipped through to the end and handed it back to me. I asked him what he found that caused his reaction. He said it was what he didn't find. He hadn't expected it to be in there, as it was obscure, but he wanted to check. I asked him what he was looking for, and he said it was a story that came from his hometown. He told me the legend of the cabin. No one knew who had built it or when, and as far as anyone could tell, it had always been there. It became locally famous when people claimed to visit the cabin and be healed of various ailments, everything from joint pain to cataracts. News traveled the area about it for some time, as well as news traveled back then. But it was quickly forgotten when healing springs were discovered in Arkansas and made national headlines. Only the locals and a few self-published books had information on the cabin, and it had faded into obscurity over the years. He had been told stories about it growing up, about how visiting it could make things right with you. A lot of people talked about it but he doesn't remember anyone ever actually going there. I asked him if he had ever taken the trip himself, and he replied that he hadn't. It was always too far out of the way, and he never put much stock into the tales. We spent the rest of our time quietly organizing newly arrived books and going over inventory. At the end of the day, he asked if I wanted to go with him to find the cabin over the upcoming weekend, and I said yes. It was all I could think about after our talk and I didn't have plans for the next couple of weeks until I started my new job. He had taken a few days off from work the following week so we could have extra time if needed, and the truth is that we were planning on taking our time. It had been a while since either of us had gone out for a trip, let alone a weekend-long trip. That Friday after work, I went home and grabbed the bag I'd packed. Gabe picked me up in his hatchback, and we started the hours-long drive to Walden Creek. It was mostly uneventful, with sporadic conversations over the low radio. We stopped twice, and we were keeping to the schedule we had outlined, meaning we would make it to the motel before 10. We'd be staying 45 minutes away from Walden Creek, which was the closest motel we could find. The road had become narrower, the trees hugging the sides more and more. It took me a while to realize that the light pollution I was used to from living close to the city was gone and the only sources of light were the moon and the car. I stared out the window, watching the trees pass. It brought back memories of family camping trips, and I dwelt on those for a few minutes, waking up early to the sounds of the forest, the breeze carrying an earthy smell over the morning dew, 
It would cast a calming spell on me as I stood, taking it all in. The last trip we had was over a decade ago, before the family grew apart and moved their separate ways. I was brought back to the car when Gabe had to slow down for a deer in the road. It looked up at us and stared for a second before slowly walking to the other side. I looked at the clock, about an hour left in the motel. We arrived, checked in, and brought our bags to our room. Gabe had taken the bed by the bathroom, and I was going to sleep in the one by the door. Once we were settled, I decided to take a look outside and stretch my legs. I asked if he would like to join me since we were cooped up in the car for the better part of the night, but he was content with watching the free cable and dozing off. I put on my jacket and stepped out, locking the door behind me. The motel was right off the highway and about a half a mile away from a gas station. No cars as far as I could see, no freeway humming in the distance. Just rolling hills and trees everywhere. I took a deep breath and exhaled into the night and couldn't help but smile a little. The next morning we packed up and started the drive to Walden Creek. It was before sunrise, which would give us enough time to hike to the cabin before lunch. We went straight toward the hills and down the road that cut through them. They went on for several miles, and soon we were descending. As we drove down into the valley, the radio lost signal, and Gabe said we were close. He took seemingly random turns on unmarked roads, still going down, and we were soon on a sloping stretch of dirt road. The surrounding hills were massive now, and we were still going down. I caught glimpses of the occasional house nestled in the trees along the steep slopes, and they gave me a sense not unlike vertigo for a moment. Soon the trees blocked most of the view, and we leveled off. A small, hand-painted wooden sign was attached to a large tree, reading Walden Creek, just ahead. Gabe smiled and said, Home sweet home. We'd made it. Rounding a bend, a clearing revealed several old buildings. An auto repair shop, grocery store, barber, post office. They were all on one side of the road. All wooden with planks that had weathered to a dry, light gray over the years. A few rusty cars were parked in the dirt lot they all shared, but I couldn't see any people in the cars or through the windows. On the other side of the road, in a field, sat a large building that looked much newer and in better shape. It was at least 30 feet tall and was a deep emerald color, with black trim around the massive doorway beneath a blackened canopy. Tall, irregularly shaped windows were on all sides, black trim as well. Its roof was made into sharp angles, and had what appeared to be a large wooden carving of a deer standing over the doorway. The car slowed as we both stared in silence. Under his breath, Gabe said, Huh, that's new. The handmade sign in front said Valley Church in a fancy script. It was startling how out of place it was, surrounded by the forested hills and old buildings across the street. It seemed like it would be more at home in an eclectic city. I craned my neck as we moved past it, watching the whole time until we had gone far enough that a slight curve in trees blocked my view. I turned to face the front and asked Gabe if he had any idea what that was. He shook his head. By all accounts, Walden Creek was a poor town. 
Not that anyone was wanting for things. Far from it. The people here had learned long ago how to get by with minimal help, and they were content with what they had. That being said, there was no way they had enough money to build that church. I sat in silence for a moment as we passed several small cottages, each looking about as old as the shops from earlier. Newer, brown wood had been used to patch or replace sections, giving them a hodgepodge look. We were going to Gabe's aunt's house, who was his last living relative in town. His parents had moved away five years ago, currently living in a small house in Kentucky. He had no uncles on either side, only the one aunt on his father's side. Her name was Jean, and she had never married or started a family of her own. Gabe recalled her as being a nice, eccentric woman who would rather keep to herself than go out into town. The visit would be a nice surprise for her, he had said. We went further into the valley, swerving gently around potholes and small branches, and he pulled into the driveway of a cottage smaller than the ones I'd seen. There were handmade birdhouses hung from the trees in the yard, and the grass was long and unkempt. A stack of firewood laid against the wall, and a rusted wind chime swung in the breeze hanging from the corner of a small porch outside of the front door. We got out of the car and made our way to the door, weaving through the taller patches of grass. I hung back and let Gabe get on the porch alone. He knocked on the door, and we waited. He called out and knocked again, and in a few seconds the doorknob rattled, and the door lurched open with the sound of wood against wood, warped over the years until it didn't quite fit the frame anymore, unless a lot of effort was put into it. An older woman with light brown and gray hair stood in the doorway, wearing a flannel shirt and pajama pants. She looked like she had just woken up from a nap. She squinted at Gabe for a second, then a smile grew, and she threw her arms around him. He gave a laugh and hugged her back. They talked for a few seconds before he motioned back to me. She called out a greeting and I gave a smile and a wave, and she ushered us both inside, holding the door open. Her house smelled like the old tree house I used to play in growing up. Nothing matched as far as furniture went or anything else in there for that matter. We took a seat in the living room and she hurried off to the kitchen around the corner. I barely had enough time to glance around the room before she returned with glasses of tea for us both. She had no television or radio that I could see, only an old stereo with a cassette player. I took inventory of my surroundings while they chatted and caught up. The dreamcatcher hung in the window and knitted blankets with varying sizes and patterns were hanging from the walls. Small wooden carvings were placed around the room, all done lovingly by hand. There were mostly animals, large and small, and a few people scattered about, all wearing different kinds of clothes and accessories. The detail was immaculate. It had a strangely cozy feeling to it, a certain rustic charm that I was drawn to. There was a lull in the conversation. I casually leaned forward and set my glass on the coffee table and looked at Jean. She was wistfully looking into her glass, the impromptu visit no doubt bringing back good memories. She glanced up at me and I cleared my throat. I asked her what was going on with the church. She leaned forward and stared at me. At first I thought she didn't hear me, so I asked again. She continued staring. I was starting to get uncomfortable 
and I could see Gabe trying to figure out how to resolve the situation. He opened his mouth, but before he could speak, Jean answered. She said to stay away from there, and it was best not to bring it up again. I moved back in my chair. She said not to ask anyone else either, just leave it alone. I could tell that I had struck a nerve of some sort, but I wasn't sure why she was acting so strange. I glanced at Gabe and he narrowed his eyes and shook his head, giving a slight shrug. He didn't know either. I looked back at Jean and she was staring intensely at me. I put my hands up in a submissive gesture and said that I wouldn't bring it up again. She seemed satisfied with my reply and leaned back into a relaxed position. There was a long stretch of silence as we all just avoided each other's gazes and looked around the room. After a bit, Jean asked Gabe why he decided to come back to town. He sheepishly told her that he wanted to finally go to the fabled cabin, and he had asked me to come along. Jean suddenly stood, throwing the pillow she had in her lap forcefully into the couch cushion. She practically shouted that we were to not go there, under any circumstance. There was an anger in her that was almost frightening. Her pale blue eyes had gained a deeper color and no longer looked like they belonged to her. Gabe and I both recoiled instantly. He stood first, then I stood. He was saying that we wouldn't go, telling her to calm down. The rustic charm I felt when we first entered disappeared, and the treehouse feeling morphed into that of walking into a stuffy attic. The room felt much smaller and hotter, and I was ready to leave. Gabe must have felt the same, since he apologized to Jean and said that we should be on our way. I mumbled a goodbye of sorts, and we both clumsily made our way to the front door, Jean huffing behind us. I walked quickly to the car and hopped in, Gabe right behind me. He started the car and put it in reverse, trying to not show his panic in his driving. Jean stood on the porch staring at us, and as we backed up, I saw the anger slowly leave her. In its place, fatigue seemed to set in, and she suddenly looked very tired. She lowered her gaze to the ground and stared for a moment before re-entering her house. By that time, we had backed out of the driveway and started heading back down the way we came. My pulse was pounding and I took a few deep breaths. This was not what I expected. We drove past some more cottages before taking a left on an even smaller road. This went for a while, and we sat in silence. I could tell that Gabe was shaken by what had happened. I asked what was wrong with her, and he shook his head. He said that his family had always known that she was strange, but he had never experienced that side of her until today. It wasn't long before we were in a small clearing with a pair of posts on the far side. He pulled the car around just past the post and parked. This is the path to the cabin, he said. We got out and opened the hatch, double-checking and putting on our packs. We still have plenty of time, according to my watch, and we're ahead of schedule, if anything. I asked him if he still wanted to do this after what happened with Jean, and he said yes. She'd rattled him, I could tell. We walked to the posts, spaced a few feet apart, and I could see a walking path between them hidden by the tall grass. I thought it was odd that there were no signs or anything denoting the locally famous site, since it was so ingrained in the town's history. Gabe asked if I was ready, and I nodded. He gave one look at the car, then nodded and started down the trail. I followed close behind. 
Snaking our way through the weeds and branches threatening to completely cover the path, we walked until my feet were pounding. It was getting hot, and would only get hotter over the next several hours until sundown. I wiped the sweat away from my face with my shoulder. Gabe had a large dark spot on his shirt between his shoulder blades, and I was sure that I had one also. Twice we walked through a swarm of gnats, and I was feeling the small scrapes on my arms sting with each new bead of sweat rolling into them. We talked at length about nature and the outdoors, mostly to keep our minds off the heat and the exhaustion. We should be about halfway there, he said, stopping to study the map he had put together before our trip based on his research and knowledge of the area. We took the opportunity to drink some water and adjust our packs. The sun was high overhead, and I couldn't wait to get out of it. We picked back up and carried on. Some time had passed before Gabe took the map out again, tracing a path with his finger and looking around for landmarks. He folded it up and put it away, and announced that it was just over the next small hill. Gabe made it to the top first and stopped, waiting for me. I reached him and looked down the other side of the hill. There it was, in a circular clearing flanked by a small stream and shrouded by a canopy of treetops overhead. I felt a mixture of excitement and disappointment. This was the fabled cabin that we had come so far to see, that many people talked about as a place of wonder, but it wasn't exactly what I expected. I actually didn't know what I expected, but this looked like any old, collapsing wooden building. I glanced at Gabe, and he had a big grin on his face. Let's go, he said, and started making his way down the hillside. We walked to the front of the cabin and up to the door. I made it there first, and reached out to test it, and it opened freely with a low groan. I glanced around the small space before gingerly stepping inside. The wood was very old and I didn't really trust it to hold my weight, let alone both of us. The floorboards creaked with every movement I made. Just a bare floor with four walls and two windows, each on opposite walls. The roof was sagging and rays of sunlight were shining through the various holes. It was cooler inside, though, and I was thankful for that. Gabe walked in behind me with a look of awe as he surveyed the scene. This was something that was a big part of his life growing up and he was finally seeing it for himself. I shrugged my backpack off and placed it in the corner by the door, and Gabe did the same with his. He slowly made his way around the edge of the room, at one point reaching his hand out to trail alongside him on the wall. I walked to the middle of the room with measured steps, fully aware that each one could send my foot through the wood and leave me with a nasty injury I'd rather not have to deal with so far from help. Gabe stopped at the furnace and reached down, grabbing the handle and giving it a test turn. It creaked and gave way, and he opened it, peering inside. A thin layer of ash and small pieces of burnt wood were all that were in there, remnants of a fire from who knows how long ago. He put his hand at the opening, with the intent of sifting through the contents, then seemed to change his mind and withdrew it without reaching inside. He carefully closed it and turned around, I asked him what he wanted to do since we had finally made it to the legendary place he had heard so much about, and he said he wanted to sit and have lunch. We shared a small laugh and moved our packs outside, taking out the lunch boxes with granola bars, trail mixes, sandwiches. 
We sat down on the ground and talked while we picked through the provisions we brought. He said that, as odd as it seemed, he expected the cabin to be smaller. We sat for a while and listened to the sounds of nature while we finished eating. The trash from the wrappers was placed back inside the lunchboxes, and we stood up, brushing the dirt off our pants. We walked around the outside of the cabin, examining the state of it. It certainly didn't look special, which is the case of most places built up from stories, I suppose. Weeds were thick on one side, and we had to give it a wide berth, careful not to trip over the undergrowth. The stream was quietly trickling in the background. We made it back to the front, and Gabe said he wanted to go back inside one more time before we left. He walked inside, and just as I moved to follow, I heard the snap of a stick somewhere over the hill we had come from. I stopped and waited, my eyes fixed in that direction. It could have been a rabbit or a badger, but it sounded like a heavy stick, so more likely a deer. We hadn't seen any deer while we had been out, and I was hoping to at least catch a glimpse before we left. Moments passed without another sound, maybe 15 seconds, before I relaxed and turned back to the cabin, stepping over the threshold. Gabe was standing just inside the door, facing away from me, standing very still. The furnace was open. The door was as far back as it could go. Something was setting inside it, nestled among the charred pieces. I quickly looked behind me and towards the hill, my heart caught in my throat. Nothing there. I turned back around and Gabe looked at me, and his eyes were wide and alert. We walked outside, and I called out into the trees, waiting for an answer. I called out several more times as we made our way around the cabin again, looking for any signs of other people. It wasn't impossible that there were other people out there, maybe having fun at our expense, but I was getting an uneasy feeling. I grabbed the nearest solid-looking stick and held it close to my waist. We made our way back to the front and grabbed our packs, deciding that it was, in fact, someone playing a joke on us, sneaking around unseen to see if they could get a reaction. We talked quietly, all the same, though, since after calling out so many times with no response, we thought that any more loud noises would only mask the sounds of someone moving through the woods. Gabe said that he wanted to see what was in the furnace before we left. I admitted that I was curious as well. I would wait by the door as a lookout while he went inside and checked the thing out. He hurried as lightly as he could across the floor, and I glanced back and forth between him and the tree line. He took the thing out of the furnace and turned around so I could see it. It was a bunched up piece of burlap, covering a small object roughly the size of an orange. I watched as he unfurled it and pulled it away, letting it fall. It was a wooden carving of a wolf, head down and teeth bared, with the same level of detail on it as the others we had seen. I went to the door and stuck my head out slowly, giving quick glances back and forth along the outside walls and tree line. I strained my ears but heard nothing beyond the breeze, water, and my own breathing. Without turning around, I told Gabe that leaving right then sounded like a great idea. The peaceful atmosphere had changed. As we moved up the hill where we came from, we were stopped by a loud crack and thud. The door had split around its remaining hinge and finally gave way, falling to the floor and ripping a large trunk out of the frame with it. 
I don't like this, Gabe said, and I agreed. As we retraced our steps through the path, I was alerted to every small noise around us. Occasionally, one of us would stop walking for a moment to stare intently through the trees before we continued. Paranoia had set in. We were drenched in sweat, drinking our water without stopping for rest. I was getting tired. Gabe had the map out while we walked and informed me that we were almost back to the car. I wiped sweat away from my face, keep it from running in my eyes. My shoulders hurt from my pack, and I was ready to unload it and set in the car with the AC on full blast. Gabe made it over the hill, and I trudged along behind him. I looked up. We were back at the cabin. He let out a loud curse that echoed across the clearing. Somehow, we had made a giant circle. I dropped my pack on the ground and slumped against a tree. My legs and feet were killing me. Gabe let his pack slide off and stared in disbelief. He poured over the map, tracing a path with his finger. We should have come out right here, he mumbled to himself. He shut his eyes tight and pinched the bridge of his nose. He sighed, then asked if I was ready. I brushed myself off and picked up my pack, and we turned around and started again. After another long hike, we were both exhausted. The heat wasn't letting up, and the shade from the trees wasn't helping much. There had been no wind, or even the slightest breeze to cool us. Insects buzzed around us, the icing on our miserable cake. Gabe was focused and had a stern look as he drew and wrote on the map with a marker. Little arrows and circles with scribbles littered the page to keep us on track and assure him that we were moving in the right direction. He would stop every now and then, rubbing his hand. We reached the end of the path and went around a thicket, and Gabe let out a quiet no. The hill in front of us. We both knew where it led. We shouted in frustration, no longer caring about the noises from earlier. We were too tired and angry. We shrugged off our packs again, and I hit the nearest tree with the side of my fist. How did this happen? I asked. He answered defensively, saying it shouldn't have happened. He had made sure to mark everything we walked past on the map, and we were going in a semi-straight line the entire time. It was impossible that we turned completely around. We sat at the same trees from earlier to rest and recuperate. It must be getting close to sunset by now, I thought, and then we wouldn't be able to make it out for sure. I looked at my watch and saw that the hands had stopped. It was showing the time that we first arrived at the cabin. I asked Gabe to check his, since his was digital. He raised his wrist and looked confused. His watch was frozen on the same time, with the second counter flashing but never increasing. We decided to go back into the cabin to rest, and started down the hill. The cabin looked different, somehow. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. The area around it was the same. It had the same falling roof and old weathered wood. Everything I saw looked the same, but that didn't stop this feeling of apprehension from bubbling up as we approached. Gabe noticed before I did. Look at the door, he said abruptly as we stepped into the clearing. That's what it was, I realized with a start. The door was hanging back on the single rusted hinge. Someone must have come back and put it up when we were gone. But no. I thought, 
as we crept closer. No, this wasn't a repair job. How is all I was able to manage? How? There's someone here, Gabe whispered. No sooner had the words left his mouth, the door gave way with a loud splitting and splintering noise and crashed the cabin floor once again. We need to leave, I said. We need to go now. Agreed, he replied shakily. We turned and ran. Adrenaline coursed through my veins. We trampled through the underbrush, the path we had walked growing smaller in the opposite direction. I was covered in fresh scrapes and sweat, thorns and branches tugged and ripped my clothes, and the pain pushed me to keep going. We reached the top of a steep hill and started down it, but my foot hit a large root and I tumbled forward, end over end. I rolled for a bit before sliding several feet on my back. I strained and winced, but couldn't get enough momentum to roll over before it was unbearable. I heard Gabe coming down behind me, asking if I was okay. I lay still and closed my eyes, face screwed up, trying to catch my breath. Can you walk? he asked. I don't know, I said. I opened my eyes and he held his hand out. I grabbed it and he heaved me up to the setting position while I gritted my teeth and groaned. He held me to my feet, my back screaming the entire time. I told him I wouldn't be able to run anymore and he said that was fine. He threw my arm over his shoulders and we laboriously stagger-stepped all the way down to the bottom of the hill. Do you have any idea where we might be? I asked. He stared ahead and said no. We would just keep walking until we found water. I limped along and we walked in silence for a bit, me feeling like an idiot for falling and hurting myself, and an even bigger idiot for leaving my backpack with the first aid kit at the base of a tree. I apologized, and we focused on pressing forward. I had to stop and rest, leaning against a tree to try and take the pressure off my back. I asked him how bad it was, and he lifted the back of my shirt up to survey the damage. Bad, he said. Real bad. I'm surprised you can even walk at this point. He went around me, wiping blood from his hands onto the back of his pants. You need a doctor, he said. We need to get out of here and get you to a hospital. He rubbed his hand and looked around. Let's go, he said. He grabbed my arm again and we set off. How long do you think we've been out here? He asked. It feels like forever, I said, but probably like five hours. Why? He dropped his hand and looked at me. The sun hasn't moved. This whole time we've been out here, ever since we got to the cabin the first time, the sun just stopped moving, he said. I didn't notice at first, but I felt sick. Not from the pain, but because what he had said was what I had been refusing to admit to myself, what had been gnawing at the back of my mind. The rational part couldn't accept it, but Gabe was confirming it, and I knew he was right. I looked up from the ground when I heard running water, and through the trees, set the cabin. We stood there, insects buzzing and the sun beating down on us, my back begging for respite. Gabe, I said, I can't. I'm, I'm sorry. I need to rest. 
I've never been so worn out in my life. I can barely stand. I'm fighting to stay awake. We'll rest in the cabin, he said. He half dragged me in my worn down state to the door, and we weren't surprised that it was resting on the rusted hinge again. He lowered me down to the middle of the floor on my stomach. I'll be right back, he said, and left. I heard him make his way around outside and the tearing of cloth in the distance, and a short while later he came back in. He was holding one of the sleeves of his shirt, dripping water across the floor. This is going to be cold, but it needs to be cleaned, he said, raising the back of my shirt up, and he wrung the cloth out over my back. The cold bit into me sharply and my body tensed up. He wiped the excess away and laid the sleeve over the worst part of my back and fixed my shirt. That's the best I can do for now, he said. He sat down and kicked his legs out, chin resting on his chest, rubbing his hand. I murmured a quiet thanks before I closed my eyes and drifted off. I dreamed of the church. It was dark and I was standing next to the sign at the end of the drive. The only light was coming from the windows, a soft reddish-orange glow. I walked towards the door, looking around as I went, but the light stopped a short ways away and turned into a wall of darkness, and I was certain that nothing existed beyond that wall. As I walked, I could hear muffled voices from inside, singing. No, no, not singing. There was no musical quality to it, or accompanying instruments. It was chanting. I reached the great emerald door and pushed it open, requiring some effort on my part. It was much heavier than it looked. As I stepped inside, I saw a rose of pews, the same color as the door, and made out of the same material. The high ceiling was painted white, and along the walls, there were countless symbols and archaic ruins, carved and painted all over, none of which looked familiar. Oil lanterns were mounted on the walls, and the people sitting in the pews were casting malformed shadows that danced around the room. Squat, wide figures morphed into thin, stretched versions and back again every second. At the far end was a podium, with a large, feathery wing sculpture protruding from each side. An older woman in a purple dress stood there, one arm outstretched towards the crowd with her palm up, as if asking for an offering. I stopped at the back row of pews and the door shut behind me. She closed her hand and lowered her arm, and the chanting stopped. The pews were filled with what I could only assume to be the entire population of the small town. They were sitting, waiting, and didn't take notice of me. The woman gripped the podium and spoke. It provides, she said. The crowd answered with a loud, praise it. It protects, she said. Fear it, they answered. It is salvation. And was met with, amen. It is not without form, she continued. It is eternal, it is rewarding. It is the keeper of chaos. It chose us as vessels for its divine will, and we serve the glory of its promise. It speaks to us, it speaks through us, and it speaks for us. We are lost without it, and it keeps us. 
She motioned toward the edge of the pew in front, and someone stood. It was Jean. Does it have to be him? She asked. The woman held out her arm again, and in unison the people said, Yes. Is there another way? She asked. No, they answered. There was a pause. What about the other one? The other is not needed. Jean sniffled, and even through the dim lights I could see tears in her eyes. The woman walked over to her and hugged her. She spoke quietly to her, and I couldn't make out what she was saying. After a few moments she pulled away from her and wiped the tears from Jean's face. Jean nodded. The woman held Jean's face in her hands, looked approvingly at her, then walked back to the podium. Jean sat back down, smiling, wiping at her eyes. What must be done will be done, the woman said. It is time. Everyone stood. The woman held her arm out again and pointed directly at me. At that, they all turned and stared at me. I suddenly felt dozens of unseen hands grab me and I struggled to free myself. The purple-dressed woman left the podium and walked down the aisle to me and put her hand on top of my head. Go, she said, and I woke with a start. I didn't realize where I was for a moment as I tried to catch my breath and stop shaking. It all seemed so impossibly real. Then the events of the day rushed to me as the pain in my back demanded my attention. I noticed it was dark and wondered how long I had been asleep. I heard banging and scraping across the floorboards. With effort, I turned towards it to see Gabe. He was lying by the wall, twitching and convulsing. I scrambled to my knees and crawled towards him, calling out. A seizure, I thought. He was having a seizure, and I could have slept right through it. I reached him and grabbed his shoulder to pin him down and put my hand under his head, but his shoulder was as far as I got. His movements were unnatural, stiff and constricted. His arm was thrashing around in a mechanical way. Through the little light that came through the door and window, I caught a glimpse of it, and when it was still for a brief period, I felt my body weaken. I reached out to his arm and pulled back quickly. His skin didn't feel like skin. There was no give, and the texture was all wrong. It was rough, abrasive. He turned towards me and we made eye contact, and he saw the look on my face. It was the look of someone holding in a scream that desperately wanted out. The right side of his face had a large cut from the cheekbone to the corner of his eye, and he was covered in dirt from the floor. The left side of his face, however. The left side of his face looked like it was carved from wood. His eye was still, unseeing, his hair grooves in a solid piece. The skin and wood met in a sickening way and he looked like a mannequin wearing a flesh mask that was cut haphazardly and folded over the edges of a piece of wood. I recoiled in horror and crawled backwards. He tried to speak, I think, but the noise that came out wasn't a voice, and I don't want to hear it again for the rest of my life. He raised his arm and looked at it, which was already wooden. He seemed confused for a moment, 
and tried to turn his head towards me, but shuddered and stopped. He was silent. Concern and confusion chiseled into his wooden face. I kept crawling until I was against the wall, and I couldn't look away from him. I made an incoherent noise and pressed myself hard against the wall. Through my panic, I could hear people walking through the woods outside. A large number of people. They surrounded the cabin, and I could see silhouettes through the doorway of figures standing shoulder to shoulder. They were chanting. It provides, I heard a voice call out. It doesn't just provide, I thought, as they closed in. Sometimes, it needs something in return. <laughs>